Chapter 8 of Theophrastus Such by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Josh Middledorf. Chapter 8 The Watchdog of Knowledge. Mordax is an admirable man, ardent in intellectual work, public spirited, affectionate, and able to find the right words in conveying ingenious ideas or elevated feelings. Pity that to all these graces he cannot add what would give them the utmost finish, the occasional admission that he has been in the wrong, the occasional frank welcome of a new idea as something not before present to his mind. But no, Mordax's self-respect seems to be of that fiery quality which demands that none but the monarchs of thought shall have an advantage over him, and in the presence of contradiction or the threat of having his notions corrected, he becomes astonishingly unscrupulous and cruel for so kindly and conscientious a man. <clears throat> you are fond of attributing those fine qualities to Mordax, said Acer the other day, but I, I have not much belief in virtues that are always requiring to be asserted in spite of appearances against them. True fairness and good will show themselves precisely where his are conspicuously absent. I mean, in recognizing claims which the rest of the world are not likely to stand up for. It does not need much love of truth and justice in me to say that Aldebaran is a bright star, or Isaac Newton the greatest of discoverers, nor much kindness in me to want my notes to be heard above the rest in a chorus of hallelujahs to one already crowned. It is my way to apply tests. Does the man who has the ear of the public use his advantage tenderly, toward poor folks who may be hindered of their due if he treats their pretensions with scorn. That is my test of his justice and benevolence. My answer to this was that his system of moral tests might be as delusive as what ignorant people take to be tests of intellect and learning. If the scholar or savant cannot answer their haphazard questions on the shortest notice, their belief in his capacity is shaken but the better informed have given up the Johnsonian theory of mind as a pair of legs able to walk east or west according to choice. Intellect is no longer taken to be a ready-made dose of ability to attain eminence or mediocrity in all departments. It is even admitted that application in one line of study or practice has often a laming effect in other directions, and then an intellectual quality or special facility which is a furtherance in one medium of effort, is a drag in another. We have convinced ourselves by this time that a man may be a sage in celestial physics and a poor creature in the purchase of seed-corn, or even in theorizing about the affections, that he may be a mere fumbler in physiology and yet show a keen insight into human motives, that he may seem the poor pole of the company in conversation, and yet write with some humorous vigor. It is not true that a man's intellectual power is like the strength of a timber beam to be measured by its weakest point. Why should we any more apply that fallacious standard of what is called consistency to a man's moral nature, and argue against the existence of fine impulses or habits of feeling in relation to his actions generally, because those better movements are absent in a class of cases which act peculiarly on an irritable form of his egotism. 
the mistake might be corrected by our taking notice that the ungenerous words or acts which seem to us the most utterly incompatible with good dispositions in the offender are those which offend ourselves. All other persons are able to draw a milder conclusion. Laniger, who has a temperature, but no talent for repartee, having been run down in a fierce way by Mordax, is inwardly persuaded that the high-lauded man is a wolf at heart. He is much tried by perceiving that his own friends seem to think no worse of the reckless assailant than they did before. And Corvus, who has lately been flattered by some kindness from Mordax, is unmindful enough of Laniger's feeling to dwell on this instance of good nature with admiring gratitude. There is a fable that when the badger had been stung all over by bees, a bear consoled him by a rhapsodic account of how he himself had just breakfasted on their honey. The badger replied peevishly, The stings are in my flesh, and the sweetness on your muzzle. The bear, it is said, was surprised at the badger's want of altruism. But this difference of sensibility between Laniger and his friends only mirrors in a faint way the difference between his own point of view and that of the man who has injured him. If those neutral, perhaps even affectionate persons, form no lively conception of what Laniger suffers, how should Mordak have any such sympathetic imagination to check him in what he persuades himself is a scourging administered by the qualified man to the unqualified? Depend upon it, his conscience, though active enough in some relations, has never given him a twinge because of his polemical rudeness and even brutality. He would go from the room where he has been tiring himself through the watches of the night in lifting and turning a sick friend, and straightway write a reply or rejoinder in which he mercilessly pilloried a Laniger who had supposed that he could tell the world something else or more than had been sanctioned by the eminent Mordax and what was worse, had sometimes really done so. Does this nullify the genuineness of motive which made him tender to his suffering friend? Not at all. It only proves that his arrogant egoism, set on fire, sends up smoke and flame where just before there had been the dues of fellowship and pity. He is angry and equips himself accordingly, with a penknife to give the offender a compratico countenance a mirror to show him the effect, and a pair of nailed boots to give him his dismissal. All this to teach him who the Romans really were, and to purge inquiry of incompetent intrusion, so rendering an important service to mankind. When a man is in a rage and wants to hurt another in consequence, he can always regard himself as the civil arm of a spiritual power, and all the more easily because there is real need to assert the righteous efficacy of indignation. I, for my part, feel with the Lanagers, and should object all the more to their or my being lacerated and dressed with salt if the administrator of such torture alleged as a motive his care for truth and posterity, and got himself pictured with a halo in consequence. In transactions between fellow men, it is well to consider a little, in the first place, what is fair and kind toward the person immediately concerned, before we spit and roast him on behalf of the next century but one. 
wide-reaching motives, blessed and glorious as they are, and of the highest sacramental virtue, have their dangers, like all else that touches the mixed life of the earth. They are archangels with awful brow and flaming sword, summoning and encouraging us to do the right and divinely heroic. And we feel a beneficent tremor in their presence. But to learn what it is they thus summon us to do, we have to consider the mortals we are elbowing, who are of our own stature and our own appetites. I cannot feel sure how my voting will affect the condition of Central Asia in the coming ages, but I have good reason to believe that the future populations there will be none the worse off because I abstain from conjectural vilification of my opponents during the present parliamentary session, and I am very sure that I shall be less injurious to my contemporaries. On the whole, and in the vast majority of instances, the action by which we can do the best for future ages is of the sort which has a certain beneficence and grace for contemporaries. A sour father may reform prisons, but considered in his sourness, he does harm. The deed of Judas has been attributed to far-reaching views and the wish to hasten his master's declaration of himself as the Messiah. Perhaps, I will not maintain the contrary, Judas represented his motive in this way and felt justified in his traitorous kiss. But my belief that he deserved, metaphorically speaking, to be where Dante saw him at the bottom of the Melbolge would not be the less strong because he was not convinced that his action was detestable. I refuse to accept a man who has the stomach for such treachery as a hero impatient for the redemption of mankind and for the beginning of a reign when the kisses shall be those of peace and righteousness. All this is, by the way, to show that my apology for Mordax was not founded on his persuasion of superiority in his own motives, but on the compatibility of unfair, equivocal, and even cruel actions with a nature which, apart from special temptations, is kindly and generous and also to enforce the need for checks from a fellow-feeling with those whom our acts immediately, not distantly, concern. Will any one be so hardy as to maintain that an otherwise worthy man cannot be vain and arrogant? I think most of us have some interest in arguing the contrary, and it is of the nature of vanity and arrogance, if unchecked, to become cruel and self-justifying. There are fierce beasts within. Chain them, chain them, and let them learn to cower before the creature with wider reason. This is what one wishes for Mordax, that his heart and brain should restrain the outleap of roar and talons. As to his unwillingness to admit that an idea which he has not discovered is novel to him, one is surprised that quick intellectual and shrewd observation do not early gather reasons for being ashamed of a mental trick which makes one among the comic parts of that various actor conceited ignorance. I have a sort of valet and factotum, an excellent, respectable servant, whose spelling is so unvitiated by non-phonetic superfluities that he writes night as N-I-T. One day, looking over his accounts, I say to him jocosely, you are in the latest fashion with your spelling pummel. 
Most people spell night with a G-H between the I and the T, but the greatest scholars now spell it as you do. <clears throat> so I suppose, sir, says Pummel, I've seen it with a G-H, but I've no ways given to that myself. You would never catch Pummel in an interjection of surprise. I have sometimes laid traps for his astonishment, but he has escaped them all, either by a respectful neutrality, as of one who would not appear to notice that his master had been taking too much wine, or else by that strong persuasion of his all-knowingness which makes it simply impossible for him to feel himself newly informed. If I tell him that the world is spinning round and along like a top, and that he is spinning with it, he says, Yes, I've heard a deal of that in my time, sir, and lifts the horizontal lines of his brow a little higher, balancing his head from side to side, as if it were too painfully full. Whether I tell him that they cook puppies in China, that there are ducks with fur coats in Australia, or that in some parts of the world it is the pink of politeness to put your tongue out on introduction to a respectable stranger. Pummel replies, So I suppose, sir, with an air of resignation to hearing my poor version of well-known things such as elders use in listening to lively boys lately presented with an anecdote book. His utmost concession is that what you state is what he would have supplied if you had given him carte blanche instead of your needless instruction, and in this sense his favorite answer is, I should say, Pummel, I observed a little irritated at not getting my coffee, if you were to carry your kettle and spirits of wine up a mountain of a morning, your water would boil there sooner. I should say, sir. Or, there are boiling springs in Iceland. Better go to Iceland. Well, that's what I've been thinking, sir. I've taken to asking him hard questions, as, as I expected. He never admits his own inability to answer them without representing it as common to the human race. What is the cause of tides, Pummel? Well, sir, nobody rightly knows. Many gives the your opinion, but if I was to give mine, it'd be different. But while he is never surprised himself, he is constantly imagining situations of surprise for others. His own consciousness is that of one so thoroughly soaked in knowledge that further absorption is impossible. But his neighbors appear to him to be in the state of thirsty sponges, which it is a charity to besprinkle. His great interest in thinking of foreigners is that they must be surprised at what they see in England, and especially at the beef. He is often occupied with the surprise Adam must have felt at the sight of the assembled animals. For he was not like us, sir, used from a baby to Bombwell's shows. He is fond of discoursing to the lad who acts as shoeblack and general subaltern, and I have overheard him saying to that small upstart with some severity, Now don't you pretend to know, because the more you pretend, the more I see your ignorance. A lucidity on his part, which has confirmed my impression that the thoroughly self-satisfied person is the only one fully to appreciate the charm of humility in others. Your diffident, self-suspecting mortal is not very angry that others should feel more comfortable about themselves, provided they are not otherwise offensive. He is rather like the chilly person 
glad to sit next to a warm stranger. Or the Tibid, glad to have a courageous fellow-traveller. It cheers him to observe the store of small comforts that his fellow-creatures may find in their self-complacency, just as one is pleased to see poor old souls soothed by the tobacco and snuff for which one has neither nose nor stomach oneself. But your arrogant man will not tolerate a presumption which he sees to be ill-founded. The service he regards society as most in need of is to put down the conceit which is so particularly rife around him that he is inclined to believe it the growing characteristic of the present age. In the schools of Magna Gracia, or in the sixth century of our era, or even under Kublai Khan, he finds a comparative freedom from that presumption by which his contemporaries are stirring his able gall. The way people will now flaunt notions which are not his, without appearing to mind that they are not his, strikes him as especially disgusting. It might seem surprising to us that one strongly convinced of his own value should prefer to exalt an age in which he did not flourish, if it were not for the reflection that the present age is the only one in which anybody has appeared to undervalue him. End of chapter 8 This LibriVox recording is in the public domain.